scripture reading is going to be from Acts uh, chapter 6, verse 7 through chapter 8, verse 4. And uh, if you've already got that, please stand with me as I, uh, as I read this passage from Acts. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from the what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against the, this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and the altar and the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. The high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are living now. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. <clears throat> and after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions, and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there first. On the second visit, Joseph, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come, come to him, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in a tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But at this time of, of promise was, but at the, t the time of the promise was approaching, God had assured to Abraham the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. 
But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, were repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. It was not me to that you ought, it was not me to, excuse me, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices forty years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch, and the star of the god Rampa, the images which you made to worship, I also remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he had spoke to Moses directly. Direct. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their heart, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon disposing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for God, for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And at the end, why it is we started there and why it is we closed there. And if you haven't, I'll just point that out to you in a minute. I've titled this message, A War of Words. A War of Words in a lot of ways. That's what we're in as Christians. There's a lot of talk recently. We've been having it amongst ourselves and people have been having it on television, on radio, and all around the world about what is really important. There's a lot of talk about what's really important, isn't there? Talk, we're talking. We find ourselves talking about things like, you know, what we need to do to save lives. You know, the things that we need to be careful of. We're doing it today. 
And we're, some of us were talking about saving freedoms. You know, what does this look like for us as a nation after this epidemic is over? And then there's talk about what is essential and what is non-essential. And I've thought about that over the over a course of a few weeks. I'm sure you guys have as well. Imagine if you're a person and you're told your job is non-essential. You know, at first you're like, yeah, I get to stay home maybe, but after a minute you're thinking, wait a second, non-essential. I don't like the sound of that. Or if you're an essential worker, you could, you know, there might be some unsettling things there as well. First you'd be thinking, hey, I'm essential, and then some pride could well up with that, right? All the all that, all the thoughts of that. Those terms, essential and non-essential, and essential workers and non-essential workers and essential things and non-essential things. Some states are saying that uh, food is essential, but uh, seeds and plants and flowers, you can't work in your garden because that's non-essential. There's some kind of weird things going on. Groceries, the groceries we, that we eat are considered essential products, and that's, that's understandable, isn't it? I mean, we've got to eat, right? I shared this verse with you uh, I don't know if it was last week, it might have been the week before, when Jesus is um, resisting uh, the temptations of Satan there after his time in the wilderness. Um, Satan tempts him with this, why don't you make these stones become bread if you are the Son of God? And Jesus says this, He says, "Man, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I got to thinking about that and I, my mind went to the Garden of Eden where Satan is there also and he's trying to tempt Eve to eat the fruit. And his first words to Eve were something like this, has God, yea, has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You know, it, 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 to put it in our language, he's saying something like this, did God really say that? He, he's questioning the Word of God. He's causing Eve to question the Word of God. And that's what we're going to be looking at today is the importance of the Word of God. Or this idea that I want to put before you. And that's, I should, I wanted to say this before we read that long scripture reading. I didn't want to put anyone in a funny position where you got like, hey, I don't feel like reading this anymore. I wanted to let you know in advance. We're going to be focusing on the importance of the Word of God. Or we're going to be looking at the Word of God as your most essential thing. That's what we're going to be looking at today. We're coming back to the book of Acts. And it's recognizable uh, in, in our text. As we've been going through the book of Acts, it's recognizable that we're beginning to enter a new section of the book. The gospel message is going to, go, is going to begin to move from Jerusalem out to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth just as Jesus said it would in Acts 1.8. And you shall be but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses uh, in Jerusalem and unto Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that is beginning to happen now. The gospel is beginning to move out of Jerusalem, and, and Stephen and his martyrdom is going to be the catalyst for that. That's what's going on. And as you read what Luke has written to Theophilus back in Acts chapter 1, you may remember that's who this, this book of Acts is written to, a single individual. The first account I composed, Theophilus. There's the individual it's written to about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. It is obvious, and this person, Theophilus, his name means lover of God, and I've taken that to, and applied it to us. We are lovers of God. This, this is written to us. I don't think that's that much of a stretch. It is, it is there for us. The Word of God is for us. But um, with that thought, it is obvious that as you read through the book of Acts, as we've been going through it, that Luke has not included an exhaustive account of everything that took place as the church began to grow. He, he hasn't done that. It is not an exhaustive declaration of everything that happened. Some things he only gives a brief summary of in Acts 1.3. He says this, to these things he also, to these rather, to these people, the apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. This is one of those verses, verse 3 is for me, I don't know what it's like for you, but 
I wish that right after that, there was this four-chapter-long exposition of all that Jesus shared with them during those 40 days, right? But we, we don't get that. We get this just synopsis of, of what took place there. And then in Acts 5, there's another one of those. In Acts uh, chapter 5, verse 42, and, and this, my, this is how I think. It, it says, and, in every, and every day, rather, in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. There's all this activity going on, and this is, this, is the, this is the total of what we get of that. I would like to know what that was like when they went house to house. What was that like? What did that look like? What did they talk about? What, were the, what kind of Q&A went on? What was that like? I would love to have more information there. So Luke does not give us this exhaustive thing. He, in, in a lot of ways, he gives us just brief summaries of things, and then the things he gives us greater detail about, he has to even probably condense that down a bit as well. And it's obvious that that is the case. And, and, and the section of Scripture that Howard has read for us is one of those areas where we're given all this detail. It's all this detail about this one man named Stephen. And, and it, actually, we learned about Stephen even earlier than that. That would have been even more verses for us to listen to this morning. There's all this detail about this man, Stephen, the last time we were in the book of Acts, that, that's what we talked about. We talked about the man Stephen and the fact that the presence of God was evident in this man's life. And today, we're, looking, we're going to look at his ministry a little bit and his message and his martyrdom. We're going to touch on that a little bit. But there's a lot of detail about these things. And in his message, we're going to see that, or in his ministry rather, we're going to see that his ministry was a confirmation of the Word of God. And his message was centered on the Word of God. And in his martyrdom, in his martyrdom, he was commending the Word of God to those who were witnessing his death. There's this, there's this focus here on the Word of God that I want to bring out. And that's what I'm going to talk about now. In Acts 6-7, you will notice it says, the Word of God kept on spreading. kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. If you just flip over to 8.4, chapter 8, verse 4, that's where we ended today. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about doing what? Preaching the Word. As I've looked at this section of Scripture, I see these as bookends to everything that's in between there. And everything in between there is really the details of how it is that the Word of God was able to spread. What brought about the ability for the Word of God to be spread, for the Word of God to advance. So with these bookends in mind, we're, we're going to move into this section of Scripture and look at what is, what is in there. And we're going to focus on the importance of the Word of God or we're going to consider the Word of God as your most essential or the most essential thing in your life as a believer and the most essential thing in the life of a non-believer as well. The Word of God is essential. In, in chapter 6, verse 7, we are... In chapter 6, verse 7, we're beginning to be introduced to this man, Stephen. And, and, and part of his ministry. It says the Word of God kept on spreading. Well, we know that that is relaying back to what was spoken of before. And what happened before, and we're not going to read back there, was the apostles were, were involved with not only the ministry of the Word, but they were involved in the distribution of food for some widows. And that was growing to such an extent they couldn't take care of that. And so they said in verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. You pick out seven godly men and we're going to appoint them to that task. And because they appoint them to that task, the ministry of the Word grows. And it's into that setting that we're invited into this next section of Scripture. The Word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And I don't want us to miss this point about the priests becoming obedient to the faith. I heard someone else talking about this. His name is John Lennox. I like listening to John Lennox. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's an apologetics guy. I don't know if he's a pastor. But um, he, was, he was talking about just that. 
the idea that these priests were coming to faith in Christ, becoming obedient to the faith of the gospel. And he was saying, he likened it to this, and I'm not going to relate this exactly how he did that. What's that? What's that show, Dragnet? The names have been changed to protect the innocent, right? <laughs> I don't know exactly what name to use, but imagine you're a priest and your name is Paul. You're Paul the priest in Jerusalem. And you come to faith in Christ. And you have this freedom in Christ. You recognize His sacrifice was, was made on your account. You've trusted in His finished work on the cross and you're all excited about that, but you're still a priest there in Jerusalem. And then your buddy, Bob, Bob the Israelite, comes to you and says, hey, uh, Paul, the priest, I have this lamb and I've, I've really been messing up lately and I, I just have these sins in my life and I want you to take and sacrifice this lamb for me and, and, and just, to, just to atone for my sins. And you're this priest, you've been doing this for years and you take this little lamb from your buddy Bob and you're, you're about to walk away with this lamb and then it dawns on you, wait a second, there's no need for this sacrifice. And you walk back to your buddy Bob and you say, look, there's, I know what you want to do here, but there's just no need for this sacrifice. And let me tell you why. Jesus, Jesus paid it all. His sacrifice is sufficient. It covers, it covers it all. There's no need for this. And what John Lennox was getting at was imagine the tension, imagine the tension that was going on in Jerusalem at this time. A tension in the hearts of these priests. Tension in the hearts of the people that were coming out of Judaism and into Christianity. And the tension that existed there. And I, I'm just bringing that up because it is a reality that they're living with. And that tension is going to play out as Stephen ends up um, debating, really, with these members of this synagogue of the freedmen here. That tension is going to play out. And, and we see that play out to the point where Stephen is martyred for his faith. But it's a real tension. And it's something that we wouldn't readily just to think about. And I, I thought it was important to bring it out right now, just out of this verse 7 here. These great number of priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So Stephen is this man, and the presence, the presence of Christ was, was evident in him in his life and on his lips, and it was shining on his face. And today we're looking at what he proclaimed, and we're going to put our emphasis today on the Word of God. And as I thought about this a little bit further, this section of Scripture, I realized that there are some things that Luke wants Theophilus to know and I think some of what Luke wants Theophilus to know is, is how the Word of God advanced. And that's why the book ends. Chapter 6, verse 7, and chapter 8, verse 4. And again, all that is set between is there to describe how those things came to contribute to the advancement of the Word of God, the Gospel of Christ, the Word of God. If you were going to ask the question, how does God advance His agenda, or how does Christ build His church? The answer would have to be through the Word of God, right? It would have to be that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, it says in Romans 10.17. So you'd have to look at this section of Scripture from what is Luke trying to convey to Theophilus, and then you, you come down to the message that Stephen gives, and my mind went to, well, what is Stephen, try, Stephen trying to say with this message? And that gets to the content of that message. And in this message, all those verses that were relaying the history of the Jews, the history of Israel back to themselves, in that message, I've condensed it down just to a few thoughts I want to share with you. And I think what he's saying is that Jesus and the Gospel are not inconsistent with the history of the nation, but their history, their history is really His story. I think that's what He's, that's what he's saying to them in a nutshell. And their resistance is really the same old story. It's a resistance to the Holy Spirit. They are resisting the Holy Spirit. So what, what are we to understand or what are we to draw from all of this? And I've been wrestling with that for some weeks, maybe a few months now, actually thinking about this section of Scripture. And this is where I've landed. I've landed on this. I want to talk to you today. Next week we're going to touch on this section of Scripture again in a different way, but I want to talk to you today about the importance of the Word of God in the life of a believer. The importance of the Word of God in your life. There are many Christians, uh, and some maybe in this room even, I've talked about this, that 
with this COVID-19 virus and, and this idea that we've had to shelter in place and we can't come to church and stuff and talking about what does that mean for us as a, as a body of Christ? What does that mean for us as believers? And some of those conversations have revolved around, well, I think God is, in some aspects, God is wanting us to get back to His Word, to give us time to get back to His Word. And I, I, I think that's true. I think that's true. God would want us to be getting back to His Word So three things with regard to the Word of God. I want to talk about the power of the Word of God, the prominence of the Word from this section of Scripture, the prominence of the Word of God and the preeminence of the Word of God from this section of Scripture. And I kind of want to marry that into uh, Stephen's interaction with the people whom he is a part of, the nation of Israel. So the power of the Word of God. Chapter 6, verse 7 through chapter 7, verse 1. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And the great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what it was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including those men Howard read for us, rose up and argued with Stephen. They wanted to debate with Stephen about these things. We can see that Stephen had a powerful ministry of the word. He had a powerful ministry of the Word. And and Stephen's ministry is through the power of the Holy Spirit. We recognize that. He's a man that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. But there's this powerful ministry of the Word. And it was a ministry of the Word in a few different ways. Stephen's ministry of the Word was in this, this way. He assisted in the ministry of the Word. Because Stephen was willing to be a deacon and do those tasks, the apostles were freed up to focus on prayer and focus on the Word. And so Stephen's assistance in that caused the Word of God to spread. And many of the priests were saved. Stephen was a powerful minister of the Word. And one of the ways in which he ministered the Word was he assisted in the ministry of the Word. He assisted in the ministry. A second way that Stephen was involved with the ministry of the Word, was to confirm the Word. It says in Acts uh, 6.8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Where these wonders and signs weren't just for the sake of the wonders and signs, and we know that to be the case. These wonders and signs were meant to confirm the Word of Christ. They had a specific purpose. That's why God gave him the ability to perform these wonders and signs so that it would confirm the very Word. So he was involved with the ministry of the Word by confirming the Word through these wonders and signs. In Acts chapter um, 14, in verse 3, it says this about Paul and Barnabas. They're in Iconium, and it says that they spent a considerable amount of time there, and they were speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. It was a confirming work. Stephen was powerfully involved with the ministry of the Word the word by, by confirming the Word that was proclaimed. And then in verse 9, Acts 6, 9, we see that he just wasn't involved with assisting in the, in the, in the ministry of the Word as the apostles taught and proclaimed the Word and not just with this confirmation of the Word. He was also, it seems like he was involved with direct Communication of the Word. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including these guys, rose up and argued with Stephen. Why are they arguing with him? Because he's proclaiming the Word. He's proclaiming the Gospel. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So there's this power in the Word that Stephen is proclaiming that they just can't cope with. And I got stuck on this word cope. I'm going to put a joke in here just to just to calm me down and slow me down a little bit. This is this is construction humor. I worked construction for a little while. You guys may not know that, but I did uh, finished trim work. I did a lot of that, and I worked with this a lot of different guys. And I worked with this one guy called Case, who was from somewhere in Canada. I don't know where. Anyhow, Case came up. With, well, it would, he didn't initiate this joke. It came from somewhere, but I started using it. He walked through where I was working on something with his coping saw with a broken blade, and he says, I just can't cope with this, with his accent, right? I just can't cope with this saw. Well, he's, okay, that's a silly joke. 
That helps me, though. <laughs> That's important. <laughs> Anyhow, they can't cope with Stephen's ability to speak the word. He speaks it so powerfully, so powerfully. They cannot cope with what he has to say. They can't resist his wisdom and with the spirit with which he speaks. Stephen may be the first apologist, the first one to make a defense for the gospel, that kind of a guy. He might be the first one. They can't cope with what he spoke. They didn't have the force to resist the wisdom and the spirit with which he speaks. Because when the Holy Spirit speaks the Word of God through a man of God, a Spirit-filled man of God, there is power there. And, and Stephen wasn't just powerful in speech. He was powerful in deed as well. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a man who demonstrated. We talked about this when we just looked at the life of Stephen. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, so he demonstrated love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. And we see that even, even as Howard read for us and we saw him martyred. And what does he say? Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And then, then we move into uh, verses 11 through 14, and, and there's this charge that comes. We're talking about the importance of the Word of God, and here is Stephen powerfully proclaiming the Word of God in, in different ways. And this opposition comes against him for that. Opposition. Now, the Word of God is true, right? Why would opposition come? There's people that can't cope with that truth. What does it say in verses 11 through 14? Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. These accusations didn't put a dent in this spirit-filled man's emotions. Didn't, didn't, didn't put a dent in them. There's false words and false witnesses, and they have no power. And that's contrasted with Stephen, who has received the Holy Spirit and is a true witness, and he's speaking the truth. It has been said there, there might have been as many as 400 or 480 synagogues in and around Jerusalem at this time. I don't know if that number is accurate. But um, these men would have been of one of those synagogues. All these synagogues, the synagogue would be made up of at least 10 Jewish men. And they would come and they would read the Scripture like we did and then they would expound on that a little bit and that would be their synagogue service to at least a portion of it. Well, they were they had a synagogue that they were a part of, the synagogue of the freedmen there in Jerusalem, and here they come arguing with Stephen, and um, and because they don't like what Stephen has to say, and they can't stand up to his wisdom or the spirit with which he speaks, they bring these false accusations and they stir people up. In, in, in Acts uh, 7, 51 through 31, if you just turn there briefly, 7, 51 through 31, Stephen has a word, of, a word from God for them, and it is powerful, isn't it? I heard Howard's voice get a little excited as he began to read them. For you men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just what your fathers did. It's just this powerful word. But I would, I would point out here that he says you always resist the Holy Spirit. People can resist the Holy Spirit. It's possible to do that. God has spoken, but we can say, yeah, God, I hear that, but I don't want any of it. But there's nothing more essential to the life of a person, nothing more important than the Word of God. That's the point of this message today. There's nothing more important for us. It's not that God is silent or absent, but that man tunes him out. And God has spoken through His Word. 
It also speaks through His Son. The writer of Hebrews says, one of my favorite chapters of Scripture is chapter 1 of Hebrews, says in these last God, in, in previous times or in former times, God spoke to us through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He's spoken to us through His Son. God speaks to us through His Son. If you take Jesus out of the Bible, remove Jesus from the Word of God, you have a lifeless book. I don't know if you have any much more than a historical document, if even that, if you remove Jesus from the Bible. Jesus said to the Pharisees when He confronted them in John 5.39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these which testify of Me. That is powerful. You take me out of the Bible, you have no hope. You take me, Jesus says, out of Scriptures, you have no life. And that's the problem these folks have that are debating Stephen. Back in 6.10 it says, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Why? Because they did not possess what Stephen possessed. Stephen had the life. He had trusted Jesus. He had eternal life in Christ. He was a born-again believer. He had the Holy Spirit indwelling him. And these men don't have any of that. No wonder they can't cope with what Stephen is saying. They had memorized probably much of, of the Old Testament. But it was for them, it was just a book of facts. I know this fact, and I know this fact, and I know this fact. It wasn't the living and enduring Word of God because Jesus was absent from it for them. The incarnate Word, the eternal Word, Jesus, in the beginning was the Word. The eternal Word and the incarnate Word give life to the written Word. Colossians 1.16 says, All things were created by Him, for Him, and through Him. All things were created by Him, for Him, and through Him. John says in John 1.3, nothing that came into being came into being apart from Him. Nothing that came into being came into being apart from Him. Take Jesus out of the Bible and what do you got? If you remove the Son of God from the Word of God, you don't even have the book of Genesis. You have to scrap it. You don't have creation. It gives greater meaning for me to Peter's charge to the Jews back in Acts 3.15. He says, you killed the author of life. You killed the author of life, he tells them. Hebrews 1.3 goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 1, he sustains all things by the word of his power. In other words, he upholds all things by his command. The next breath, I just, I just took a breath, I took another one, my mind's thinking, I can see you now. All of that. The fact that I'm alive still today is a gift from God and it's sustained by Jesus. We are sustained by Him. He sustains all things by His powerful Word or by, or by the Word of His power. I'm speaking today on the importance of the Word of God and the first thing I wanted to bring out from this text was something about the power of the Word of God. And I want to draw that out of this what they say, what it says about these people that are coming up against Stephen and arguing with him from 6.10, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and with the spirit with which he was speaking. There's a debate. There's a war of words. They're using the same Bible. The Old Testament Scriptures, that's what Stephen has. They're using the same Bible absent of Jesus. Peter writes, also in 1 Peter 1.23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. God's Word is essential. It has life-giving power. What does Paul write in Romans chapter 1? I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. For in it, a righteousness from God is revealed. Then he goes on to say, what? For in the Gospel... My mind just slipped there. <laughs> yeah, the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We're talking about the importance of the Word of God today, and I'm talking to you about 
the importance of the Word of God, the fact that the Word of God is essential. And I'm saying to you, the Word of God has power. Power. The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So Stephen's ministry uh, confirms the Word and his message is going to center on the Word. He's got this message. It's all those verses long. It begins in verse 2 of chapter 7, right? And it moves all the way through to chapter 7 and verse 50. How many verses is that? 49 verses. That's a big chunk. That's a huge message. That's a long sermon he's proclaiming to them. It is just obvious that the Word of God is prominent in this section of Scripture because that's what he's relaying to them is the Word of God, the Old Testament Scriptures. It's prominent. That's my second point. The prominence of the Word of God. By prominence, I mean it just stands out. There it is, the Word of God. As you read it, as Howard was reading that, you're thinking, wow, that is a long sermon he's giving. It's the longest in the book of Acts. And God gives prominence to His Word in Scripture. God gives prominence to His Word. I'm talking to you today about the importance of the Word of God, and God gives prominence to His Word. He sets it forward as something to be valued in many places in Scripture. In many places. But I'll just share with you one place and some things from there. And You don't need to turn there, but in Jeremiah chapter 23, there's prophets that are dreaming dreams and they're telling people about their dreams and they're telling each other about their dreams and they're all saying the same thing and they're saying, the Lord said this and the Lord said that and the Lord didn't say any of it. And in the midst of all that, in chapter 23 of Jeremiah, in verse 18, God asks this question. He says, For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord? My mind goes right to Stephen. Stephen is a man who has stood in the counsel of the Lord. You hear Ron teach and you recognize this is the man that has stood in the counsel of the Lord. Ron, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but it's wonderful. You hear Patrick pray. And you hear a man who has stood in the counsel of the Lord. You interact with Soren for a little while and you realize this is a man who has stood in the counsel of the Lord. I would just go through and just talk about each one of you that way. I'm not going to do that, but we can be like that. We can be people who stand in the counsel of the Lord that, that are marinated in the Word of God. That are marinated in the Word of God. But this, this is what um, the Lord says. God asks in verse 18 of Jeremiah chapter 23, for who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and has perceived and heard His Word? Who has marked His Word and heard it? He's asking this question. And you get to verse 22, and it says this, God, the Lord says this, but if they had stood in My counsel, speaking of the prophets, those that were supposed to administer the Word of God, but if they had stood in My counsel and had caused My people to hear My words, then they, then they would have turned from their evil way and from their evil deeds. He goes on to say, God is stating that the essential nature, the essential quality of His Word in the life of His people. He's, he's stating it plainly there in Jeremiah 23. His Word is essential. It's so vitally important. And when you, when you read the, God, the book of Acts, and, you, and look, this, this concept and the Word of God continued to grow. These two places, these bookends aren't the only place. It's going to come up again. Luke just keeps that before his reader. And the Word of God continued to grow. There's this emphasis on the Word of God, the importance of the Word of God. All these details are important details because these details tell you how the Word of God spread. There's this prominence of the Word of God. And back to that power again. You know what Jeremiah says, or what what is written in Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine? It's a more familiar verse. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters rock? And on my mind, I, look, I was preparing for this. I read that. My mind went right to Paul. There's Paul. Who's Saul? He's there while Stephen is being stoned. Stephen gives this history lesson, if you will. It's not just a history lesson, though. We'll get to that in a minute here. He gives all of that, and it never... Saul can't shake it. He can never get rid of it. It sticks to him like glue. 
It keeps pounding on him and pounding on him and burning into him and burning into him and burn until where he's when he's on that road, the, that road to Damascus, and the Lord encounters him. He says, "It's hard for you to keep kicking against the goads, isn't it?" Paraphrase. I don't know exactly how that's worded, but that's what the Lord asks him. Hard for you to keep kicking against the goads, isn't it? The Holy Spirit was goading Paul, and the Holy Spirit used this this man Stephen to accomplish that work to bring Paul who was Saul, to become the Apostle Paul. Probably the greatest evangelist of all time, right? It's not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer which shatters rock. And just look how much space or prominence Stephen and Luke have given to the Word of God here. Almost the entire entirety of chapter 7. All that that we stood there and read through and thought about as we read a lot of details to give this prominence to the Word of God. And, it, and I don't take this as so much a, a defense. You can look at this and say, this is Stephen's defense. He's been accused of some things. Now he's standing there defending himself. I don't, I don't think that's it at all. You might say he's defending the Gospel, but I don't know if you could call it a defense of the Gospel. I think he's just affirming the truths of the Gospel that he's been proclaiming that he's been involved with the proclamation of. He's just affirming that. He he doesn't say, hey, I didn't never said that, and I never said that. No, that's not what I meant. He doesn't say any of that. He just affirms the truths of Scripture to them. It's beautiful what he does and the way in which he does it. So let's get into this message, just this message that he has for them just a little bit. Uh, seven one. There's the intro to the message. The high priest said, "Are these things so?" Well, there's there's Stephen's golden opportunity. I got a chance to speak, and I, I am going to speak. And it says of Stephen that he was he was filled with wisdom and with the Holy Spirit. It is obvious here because he he just draws them in right away. And he said to them, and I, I like the King James, so I have it here in my notes. And he said that. And he said, men, brethren, and fathers, hearken or listen to my words. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. Or Haran. He begins in such a way as to grab their attention. He's saying, I'm not your enemy. Nationally, I'm your brother. Brothers? Men? Brothers? Fathers? He... He deals with them respectfully. He dresses the fathers as that. And this isn't just for show. He is a sincere man. He's a man marked by humility, Stephen is. And then he takes him back 2,000 years. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. But before he goes into talking about the Word of God, he reintroduces them to the God of the Word. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. That's just got to stop them, right? He's going to make a defense and the first thing he says is the God of glory appeared. Their mind has to go where my mind goes. What was that like for Abraham? The God of glory appeared to him. Again, he takes him back 2,000 years. Sometimes you need to look back to know where you are and where you're going. Billy Graham was invited to do a... I heard this this last week, and I heard it some time ago as well, and I heard it some time before that. You might be familiar with this. Billy Graham was invited to go do some kind of evangelistic outreach somewhere or to speak at some church somewhere. And there was an individual that was a part of that church that was inviting him, or part of that group that was inviting him that said, I don't know, Billy Graham's coming. I don't know if I want him to come. And when he was asked why, he said, he's going to set evangelism back 50 years. Billy Graham ended up hearing about that. And Billy Graham said, I don't want to set evangelism back 50 years. I want to set it back 2,000 years. <laughs> that's what he said, right? And that's what Stephen is doing for them. He doesn't want to just bring them... He doesn't want to set him back 50 years. He wants to bring him right back 2,000 years and say the God of Abraham, the God of glory rather, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. He takes him all the way back to there. 
they've charged him with being opposed to Moses, and he, he trumps that. He goes back in their history before Moses was ever born. Back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And from Jacob to Moses, and some of these details we're going to talk about next week, Lord willing. And he gives all these details about them. And then from Moses to David and David to Solomon and to the building of the temple. And then he reminds them what God says about the temple. Where God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my foot, is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me? You can't contain me in a temple. And, and, and the start of him getting to that point is right here. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. God can interact with us wherever He pleases to interact with us. He's taken them on a journey through the Old Testament to affirm the Gospel of Christ, to make the point from the Word of God that their history really is His story. Focusing again today on the, on the importance of the Word of God or the fact that the Word of God is, what is the word I had? Essential. I want to go now to talking about the preeminence of the Word. The preeminence of the Word of God. If prominence means it stands out, and it does in this text, and it ought to, and, and God makes a point of saying His Word has importance, it has value, it's essential. Preeminence speaks to the fact that it exceeds all others. God has something to say, and what God has to say exceeds what anyone else has to say. It goes beyond, it trumps, it goes beyond what anyone else has to say about anything. When God speaks, we should listen. The preeminence of the Word of God, it excels all others. People have a lot to say about a lot of things. It's obvious when we looked at chapter 6, verse 9 through 14, people had a lot to say about a lot of things and they were willing to do all kinds of things to avoid dealing with the truth that Stephen was proclaiming. There were false witnesses, all kinds of things. But God's Word stands alone. It is essential. It was a long Scripture reading today. It's been a long message for them to listen to from Stephen. This is getting to be a long message for us. We're, we're going to come to a close pretty quick. I want you to know that. Maybe five minutes here. But there are some themes. When I'm talking about the preeminence of the Word of God here, there are some themes in this message that Stephen gives that kind of jumped off the page at me. And then I noticed I, in my study that I wasn't the only one that noticed some of those themes. There are just some themes, and I think if we grab hold of them, we can carry them into next week when we come back to this text. And I'll just share a few of them with you. And They're not in any particular order. So Stephen's message, which begins in Acts chapter 7 and verse 2, with what I've just been talking about, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, and ends in chapter 7 verse 50, was it not my hand which made all these things? God speaking. Everything in between there. Some themes run throughout this. And maybe you could look at it this week. Um, one of those is that he uses the Word of God to review for them their own history, to review from them their own history from God's perspective. Just like we have a, we have a perspective about the history of our nation or the history of... Someone might have a uh, perspective about the history of Romania or we might have a perspective about the history of Israel or we might have a perspective about the history of our life. Stephen sets before them their history as a nation from God's perspective. That theme runs throughout this message that he has for them. This is, this is your history from God's perspective. The review of your history, how God sees it, not how you see it. And that God is, another theme that's kind of mixed with that is that God is seen as working in and through the events of their history to bring about His purposes and plan for salvation. And, and you can see that just briefly here in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 7. But God spoke of the, to this effect that 
His descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and they, they would be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. How could God know that? Because God's God. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I will manifest, I, I, excuse me, bondage, I myself will judge. <laughs> I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. You know, that's what happened. That's what happened. Another theme that, that really, really stuck out to me, the first one that stuck out to me, is that God is reminding them, and someone else used this word, it stuck out to me and I read someone else picked up on the same thing, that God is reminding them that He is the initiator of the relationship He has with them. He is the initiator of their relationship with God. He initiated it. The, just in that first verse that we looked at, verse 2, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. There's Abraham living in Mesopotamia, going about his life. God appears to him. And as you, as you go through what Stephen has to say to them, that's just the case over and over and over again. God is the initiator of the relationship all the way through. And they are to know that. It's God appeared to Abraham. God speaks to Moses as he's seen the oppression of his people. Uh, another one that stands out to me is that God is the prominent figure. That might have stood out to me before I seen God as the initiator. But the, this idea that God is the prominent figure in Stephen's message to the nation. God is the prominent figure. It's God who, it's the God of glory who appeared in verse 2. It's God who spoke in verse 3 to Abraham. It's God who sent Abraham in verse 4. It's God who promises in verse 5. It's God who gives a covenant in verse 8. You get to verses 9 and 10, and uh, there are the patriarchs, and they're jealous of Joseph, and it says that um, God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh. It's God who is the prominent figure. And in verse 17, but as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham all the way back up here in verses uh, 5 and 6 and 7, but when the time of the promise was approaching, in other words, the 400 years or 430 years, we could talk about that next week maybe as well, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another, another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. God's going to fulfill His promise. And it just continues that way throughout what Stephen has to say to them. And a couple of more themes. Uh, many of the individuals uh, that, that Stephen mentions uh, prefigure or pre-picture Christ uh, in, in, in some pretty neat ways. And there's this theme on the subject of and the place of worship. And we know that we are to worship God now in spirit and truth. We have the Holy Spirit. We worship Him in spirit and truth. But Stephen is willing to die for these truths, for the things he's proclaiming to them. In his martyrdom, he commends the Word of God to them. I'm talking about the importance of the Word of God. Stephen is willing to be martyred to commend to them, to attest to them that everything I've shared with you is true to commend to them the Word of God. So we're going to close now. In just, just these few thoughts. Today is just a reminder of the essential nature, the importance of the Word of God. It gives us power for living in a fallen world. It should be prominent. It should have a prominent position in our lives. Not enshrined on a top shelf, but written on our hearts. It should hold up place of preeminence in our hearts and our minds exceeding all other voices. And I got to thinking about that a little bit and thinking about our exposure in comparison with other voices. Our exposure to the Word of God. And, and how much time we spend meditating on the life-giving Word of God. And I, I thought I would just give us a challenge for this week. And uh, you don't have to tell me you've haven't done it or you've done it, but if you do it throughout the week and you want to share something with me next week, I would love to hear about it. Here's my challenge to us, okay? 
And, and you've probably done this. If you're a believer any length of time, you've probably done this. I don't know who I'm talking to on there. I know I've done this. I'm challenging us to do it in a greater way. The next time you need to respond to someone, stop just long enough to let God, through His Word, speak to you before you respond. That's my challenge, stuff. That's pretty simple. I've got to respond to someone. doesn't matter what it's about. doesn't have to. I'm going to respond to someone. Someone's asking me something. There's a demand being placed. There's something going on. Whatever it is. I'm going to stop and allow the Word of God to enter my heart and my mind before I speak. My message today is about the importance of the Word of God. And I'm talking about that, the importance of it. And it ought to be important in our very lives. And I'm giving us a practical way to just to just exercise that, to allow God to, to do that. I see Nehemiah do it. You start reading the book of Nehemiah, you get really I get really excited about Nehemiah every time I read it. And you see he's just instant in prayer. Allow that communication, allow God to speak to you before you respond anyway. Let's close. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your people. Thank you for this time this morning. Father, I ask you. Bless your word to your people. Um, bless your people this week. Keep us all safe. Um, thank you for the internet and the way that we can communicate in this way. Uh, thank you for the love of your people. Thank you for this day, Father. Thank you for your great love for us and sending your Son that we might have a relationship with you through him. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.